And so for the first three weeks of our series, we looked at our first family value, which was being true worshipers. And this week, we're turning the page to our next family value, which is being inviting neighbors, inviting neighbors. So if you're taking notes today, we're talking about what does it mean to be inviting neighbors? And to help you take notes, we're going to go ahead and pull the house lights up. So if you're following along in your Bible or taking notes on paper, um, you can do that. So for the sake of seeing how ChatGPT would define an inviting neighbor, I threw it in there. Just said, all right, how would the internet define what it means to be an inviting neighbor? And like most things, I was positively surprised as to what it spit out. Listen to what it says. Being an inviting neighbor involves actively contributing to a positive and supportive community atmosphere by fostering connections, respecting boundaries, and participating in neighborhood activities. You contribute to creating a welcoming environment for everyone in the community. That sounds great. Like, I think if we just read that and went home, we'd be good, right? If we actually lived that out, right? Wouldn't that be a great place to live if we lived in a community that was marked by people who lived that way? But here's the question. Does that accurately define the communities in which we live? Unfortunately, it doesn't. Why? Well, because we all have an idealistic view of how we should relate to one another but if we're honest, all of us struggle to aspire to the ideals of love that we even have for ourselves, right? We're a society that wants to be known for being loving and inviting and welcoming to all people, right? And yet, how clear are we on the things that divide us and how unclear are we on the things that actually unite us, right? And here's the thing, it would be easy to take shots at our culture at large but I'm afraid that what's true about our community is actually true for our church as well. That there are things that you and I know that should, should shape and shift how we should live and treat one another. And yet, don't we even struggle to love the people within the body of Christ that we belong to? And so none of us whether we consider ourselves Christians or not, are immune from struggling to live up to the ideals that we claim to believe, right? Like all of us know, if we were honest, we're not the neighbors that we wish we were. I heard somebody describe it this way. They're like, hey, the only thing that really distinguishes people in my neighborhood who call themselves Christian or not is that people who call themselves Christians will actually get out of the car and wave at you as the garage door goes down. And the people who aren't will just stay in the car, hit the garage button in their car, wait for it to go down and then get out. And I was like, I mean, that's a little bit of hyperbole, but not much. And so here's what I love is that most things that we struggle with aren't new to us. And so one of my favorite things is when there's something that I struggle with that the Bible speaks to that people have been struggling with for thousands of years. And so this morning, um, like we heard, we're going to hear a familiar story, the story of the Good Samaritan. And my guess is whether you're... Um, familiar with church or not, you've heard that story because that is a word or a phrase that has just made its way into our language, right? Like if somebody does something kind for a stranger, we call that person a good Samaritan. 
right? So there was a time when we lived in Indianapolis, I was out for a run one day and I think it was the spring. And so there were these really big acorn looking things that were the size of a tennis ball. I'm running on this sidewalk. I don't see one. I sprained my ankle a couple miles from the house. And fortunately for me, there was a good Samaritan who watched it happen, pulled over and let me sweaty and stinky get in his, I don't remember, it was an expensive car, sit with him and he took me home, right? All of us know that when we see people like that, we call them good Samaritans, and this story is why. Now, let me give you a little bit of context, because what we're going to read is Jesus's response, but it's not actually the whole story. So this conversation is between Jesus and a lawyer. And as you'd imagine, the lawyer wanted to argue, and he wanted to twist Jesus's words. I know you've never met anybody like that whether they're a lawyer or not. And if you're a lawyer in here, I'm sorry, I love you and we need you. Um, But it's hard to talk to you sometimes. It's okay because you make us feel stupid. And so here's what happens. The lawyer goes, hey, Jesus, how do we get to heaven? Okay, and if you, if you go back a couple verses and read, what he's trying to do is he's trying to te- like test Jesus and trip Jesus up. And so Jesus, like he often does, he turns the table back on him and he asks him a question. He goes, you know the Bible, what does it say? And the lawyer goes, okay, you're supposed to love God with all that you are and love your neighbor to the same degree you love yourself. Jesus is like, awesome, you got it, just do that. And to, let, let's, give, let's give him the benefit of the doubt. Maybe the lawyer asks his question because he knows it's gonna be impossible to do this perfectly. Or maybe he just really doesn't wanna love anybody but himself. So what he does is he goes, Jesus, can you define who my neighbor is? And what he's hoping to do is he's hoping to take a big category of people who could be his neighbor and what he's hoping Jesus is gonna do is shrink it. He's hoping that Jesus is going to restrict the people that he's obligated to love. And unfortunately, it doesn't go that way, does it? Jesus replied with a story. He says, a Jewish man was traveling from Jerusalem down to Jericho and he was attacked by bandits. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him up and left him half dead beside the road. All right, so here's the thing. This was a really well-known road that ran from Jerusalem to Jericho. And it was well known for these kinds of things happening, so much so that it had a reputation or even a nickname as the bloody road or the bloody way. Okay, so this kind of thing unfortunately happened. And um, this road is about 17 miles long. And I actually have some pictures because I did the last three miles of this journey when I was in Israel a couple years ago. So if you want to get a picture for what this looks like, you, you see how it's very mountainous and you can kind of see this little, it's almost like a hiking path carved on the side of this mountain. All right, so go to, the, go to the next picture. This shows you just the topography of this area. These are called a wadis or a ravine. And because of, because of what the area is made of and the rain that comes, it's, it's eroded down. Okay, and so where that looks like almost like kind of straight down, That's not your eyes playing tricks on you, right? Like that's all along the way what this looks like. And so here's another picture. It just kind of shows you that this is, you're, you're going downhill from Jerusalem down to Jericho. So what you see in the distance is actually modern day Jericho. And then this last picture, um, 
there, there are these little, I mean, you, they're kind of caves, not really caves, but these are the kind of places that these robbers could have hunkered back. And imagine you're coming around a corner on the side of a hill. You have no idea that what lays ahead is this thing that's recessed and there's these guys waiting to take advantage of you, to beat you up, to take what you have. And so as Jesus is telling this story, people who know this area, people who know this road, they're nodding along like, oh, I understand that this could happen. Maybe they've made that journey. Maybe they know friends who have made that journey, but people who are hearing this story are like, I've walked that road. I know how this is possible. I know how this is at least conceivable. And so Jesus continues. He says, by chance, a priest came along, but when he saw the man lying there, he crossed to the other side of the road and passed him by. A temple assistant or a Levite walked over, looked at him lying there, but he also passed by on the other side. And so the priest and the temple assistant, these were guys who had formal roles within the temple, right? You could almost think about them as like a pastor and a worship leader, right? These were leaders in the temple. They were people who should have known God's law of love. These were people, think about this. These were people who every morning and every night would repeat the Shema, which says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. So when they got up that morning, they recited that verse and many others And then they walk by this guy on the side of the road. And when they do that, what we're seeing them do is it's a tangible expression of their unwillingness to help. And what I think is so fascinating is, as you saw from those pictures, like we're not talking about like a three, four, five lane highway. Like we're talking about a hiking trail. And for them, I'm just picturing For them to cross to the other side potentially means getting really close to the edge. Like they're so unwilling to help this guy that they're like, I'm just going to kind of get over here and hope that my foot doesn't slip because I would rather do that than actually move to help this guy. And so what we see them do is they keep their distance. And what Jesus wants us to see is that keeping our distance from people in need is not what love looks like. Right? They physically create distance and separation. It's not that they didn't see him. It's not that they didn't know what was going on, but they say, hey, I see somebody in need. I see somebody messy. I'm actually going to create some space between me and them. And so I think the, the question that we should be asking is, how do they excuse this behavior? Right? If there are people who, who claim to know God, love God, and actually work for God, how do they excuse taking steps away? And our best guess is that they didn't want to become unclean. Right? So Numbers 19 tells us that if somebody were to touch a dead body, they'd be unclean for seven days. Gives us the, the process for how they were supposed to be made clean. And our best guess is that they said, you know, if I go help this guy, I'm going to be made unclean, and then I'm not going to be able to go to the temple and worship God. I'm not going to be able to go to the temple and help people. So it's actually best for me and everybody else if I walk by this person and don't actually help them. And if you're like me, you you, you kind of read this story, you hear that, and you're like, that's a terrible excuse. 
right? It's easy to read this story, look at these two and cast judgment on them. And here's the, here's the thing, that is the point, right? When we read this story, we're supposed to clearly see that who they are and what they represent is not what Jesus wants. But let me ask you a question. Do you stop and help everybody that you see who is in need? Have you ever felt a tug to actually go and help somebody but made an excuse yourself? I can remember a few years ago being in line to check out at Target and there was this family in front of me, a mom with a couple kids and I felt this tug, this, this pull within me to actually offer to like pay for their, their grocery bill. And I was really clear that it's what I was supposed to do. But I didn't know this lady. I didn't know anything about her. And I was afraid that if I stepped forward and asked her if I could pay for this or offered if I could pay for her grocery and her bill, that she was somehow gonna assume that I had negative thoughts and assumptions about her. And so what did I do? I did nothing. I felt, I felt a clear direction from the Lord to step forward and help a family in need, I, I guess, I don't know. And because I was afraid of what she or anybody else would think about me, I didn't do anything. And so I'm curious, does fear ever prevent you from showing mercy? Or just imagine, you're driving down the road and you see a car pulled over on the side of the road with a flat tire. You know how to change a tire, but you're also in a hurry. You left late because you got up late. And if you don't get into work on time today, it's the third time this week. And so what do you do? Well, my guess is that you keep driving. And so I'm curious, does busyness ever prevent you from showing mercy? And then can we, can we just be honest? When it comes to help like meeting physical needs, my guess is that at some point, if you have tried to do that, there's actually a part of you that's potentially cynical because maybe, maybe you saw somebody in need, you walked towards them, you said, hey, how can I help you? They said they needed food for a meal. You gave them some money. And when you came back out, they had a brown bag and they had an alcohol bottle in it. I remember being in college, there was this lady standing on the road, it was this time of year, and she didn't have a jacket on, and you could tell like her arms were red from how cold she was. And I remember we drove up the street, we got her a jacket, we gave it to her, and the next day I drove by, and guess what she was not wearing? The jacket. And if we're honest, those kinds of experiences make us cynical, and then when we see people in need, our, our hearts are actually hardened towards them. We don't have compassion towards them. And so if we're honest, we have more in common with the priest and the Levite than we want to admit. Which means that just like this lawyer, we, we can't judge these guys. We have room to grow as we read the rest of this story. So look what it says in verse 33. It says, then a despised Samaritan came along. And when he saw the man, he felt compassion for him. Going over to him, the Samaritan soothed his wounds with olive oil and bandaged them. Then he put the man on his own donkey and took him to an inn where he took care of him. The next day, he handed the innkeeper two silver coins, telling him, take care of this man. If his bill runs higher than this, I'll pay you the next time I'm here. 
Okay, so as Jesus is telling this story, the last person that anybody thinks is gonna be the hero is a Samaritan, right? As his audience is hearing this, they're assuming that it's gonna be just an everyday Jewish guy who comes along and helps. Not a Samaritan, right? Verse 33 indicates, right, a despised Samaritan. Jews hated Samaritans. They looked down on them because the Samaritans had compromised and intermarried in and started not worshiping God rightly. And so Samaritans were hated by Jews. I mean, there's, if you look in the stories of Jesus, you see all these little breadcrumbs that show just how much they dislike the Samaritans, right? Right, there's the story where Jesus, everyone's like, hey man, you can't go through Samaria. And he's like, no, 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 I, I have to go through Samaria, right? They literally would walk out of their way. Think about this. They did not drive out of their way to avoid Samaritans. They walked out of their way to avoid Samaritans. That is dedication that I don't have. And so you just got to imagine, imagine that you're back in the 1980s, which I can't imagine because I was not born in the 1980s, okay? I'm sorry, I'm sorry. I know for some of you that hurts a little bit, it's okay, okay? But just imagine during the 1980s, right? was kind of peak Cold War, right? Russia is our enemy. Imagine you're hearing a story, this same story, and as Jesus gets to the punchline to talk about who the hero is, Jesus is like, and this Russian guy walks up. Everyone's like, no, they're the bad guys in every single movie. And you know it's true if it's in Mighty Ducks, okay? And here's the thing, Jesus does this on purpose. Remember that the lawyer is trying to take who is my neighbor and make it the smallest group of people possible. And Jesus is saying, hey, your neighbor is anybody who you come across who's in need. And so this transcends race, this transcends gender, this transcends socioeconomic level, this even transcends political affiliation. And so I'm curious, as we think about who our neighbor is, are there any groups of people that we want to restrict that from meaning? Is there anyone that, that you or I are unwilling to help because they're different from us? I think that's a question that this passage demands us ask ourselves. Is there anyone I'm unwilling to help because they're different from me? Because I, I think what the Samaritan does is fascinating. He doesn't ask any questions of who this guy is, right? My guess is that anything that would have identified him as a Jewish man would have been taken by these robbers. And he doesn't ask any questions. He sees somebody in need and he's moved to action, right? And I think this is important because we, we live in a culture that talks about loving people and having compassion for people. And oftentimes, all that means is that we have feelings of empathy towards them, but we're not necessarily moved towards actions for them. It's really easy to say, I care about you. It's a lot harder for me to step into your mess. And think about how tangibly he steps into this guy's mess. All right, so here's what we have to see. What Jesus is telling us is that true love demands sacrificial action. True love, true compassion, it demands sacrificial action. Right, because think about how costly this is. He pauses his journey 
to help this guy, right? Certainly he had somewhere to be. Maybe he's traveling somewhere for work, right? That was something that they actually did that too, right? Like they would go somewhere and work for a period. So maybe what he's doing is he's actually decreasing his income potential to stop and help this guy because he shows up a day late. Maybe he's just going home. Maybe he has been on an assignment. He's coming home and what's he doing? He's saying, hey, I'm gonna care for this guy even though that's coming at the expense of time with my family and quite possibly, you know, hey, I've been with the kids all week. You came a day late and guess what he couldn't do? He couldn't send her a text. His wife wouldn't have known. Nobody knew where dad was. He was just a day late. I'm just saying that will make your life a little bit more complicated. I'm not saying from personal experience. And then like, think about he physically gives of his own resources to help this guy, right? So he takes wine to disinfect the wounds. He takes olive oil to soothe the wounds. And then he takes his own cloth, his own clothes, probably rips them up to actually dress the wounds, right? All that comes at a cost. And then he's like, man, I have this donkey. I've been riding the donkey, saving myself. And what's he do? He takes the guy and he puts him on the donkey and he says, I'm gonna make this journey more difficult for me so that he can get the help he needs. Compassion is costly. True love, it costs us something. And it's supposed to. And, and as I was thinking about this story, I was reminded of a story from um, a guy at our Boiling Springs campus. One of our staff members was telling us um, about a story that his, his family recently had, has walked through. He has a daughter who's a freshman in college. And last year, a girl that, they weren't really friends, but they were acquaintances at school. They found out that due to some unforeseen difficult family circumstances, one of her classmates didn't have anywhere to live. And so this guy and his wife decide, okay, we're going to let her come live with us. And as you know, right, people who come from difficult, broken family circumstances bring that where they go. And so they, they let this girl come and live with them for a couple months. And he said, you know, there were times where that was really awkward. There were times when that was uncomfortable. Like she understood the sacrifice they were making for her. But anytime they talked about church or God, like it just created a wedge because I guess her father had used religion and church as punishment, and so she lived with them for a couple months and they just continued to love her and spend time with her. And eventually the dad decided, hey, you can come back and live with me. And they decided that was a good situation. But what's so cool is that their daughter continued to invest in that relationship, continued to hang out with her, talk her, call her, and even got her kind of integrated a little bit with their friend group at church. She still felt uncomfortable coming to church, but she was starting to come and hang out around them. And six months go by and it's about Christmas time. And his daughter said, I just, I felt like I was supposed to buy her a Bible and give it to her for Christmas, even though I don't know how or when. So the daughter, right, college student decides I'm gonna go buy a Bible for this girl out of my own pocket, which if you remember from your college days, anything is a lot. So the family takes the Bible, they highlight some verses that are meaningful to their family and they basically just go, hey God, we don't really know like when we're supposed to give this to her or how we're supposed to give this to her. And one day over Christmas break, 
the daughter gets a call from this girl who said, hey, some things have been going on in my life. I've been asking some questions about who God is because we've been spending some time together. Um, I'm at the store right now trying to buy a Bible. Which one should I get? She's like, don't buy one. I actually have one for you. And so she, she gives her the Bible and they just, they, they continue to pray with her and for her. And a couple weeks later, she reaches out and she's like, hey, who do I talk to about starting a relationship with Jesus? And so just like last week, this girl prayed to receive Christ. And that's like a nine month, almost year long journey that really just started because one family said, I see somebody in need and I am going to make my life more difficult so that she can find home in Christ. And here's the thing, that story is incredible, right? And I wish I could have him tell it because it's way better when he, he tells it his way. But here's the thing, here's what we can't miss this morning is that the outcome of this story isn't, that story isn't actually the point. Because I know people in the room this morning who have opened their doors up to people in similar circumstances and the outcome did not work out that way. That's okay. The point is that we are opening ourselves up saying, hey God, I have more than I need. Not all that you've given me is for me. I see somebody in need. I'm gonna open up my hands. I'm gonna serve this person. And however you want to work, whatever outcome you want to create, I'm putting in your hands, but my hands are open. And here's what I know. The, the, the loving this way is a weighty proposition, isn't it? The idea of making ourselves more uncomfortable, the idea of us paying the cost to help somebody else is difficult. But it's also not revolutionary because deep down, we want to live this way. Deep down, we want to be people who are known not just for saying the right thing, we want to be people who are known for doing the right thing. And that's why Jesus ends the story the way he does, right? He asks the like, let me make sure you don't miss the point here question, right? He says, which of these three would you say is a neighbor to the guy attacked by bandits? The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus says, now you go and do the same. He's saying, hey man, you, you know all the right things, right? Just like us, we, we know how we're supposed to, we know what God's law, what his law of love, the grace that we've experienced demands of us. And Jesus is saying, hey, you go and do the same. And one of the things that, that really stood out to me as I was, as I was studying this this week is that um, in, one, in, the, in a different translation I was reading, he says, go and do likewise. And what's interesting is that earlier in the passage, when he's relating the priest and the Levite, he says that the Levite and the priest, they do, they do likewise. And so what the text is asking us is who do we want to be like? Do we want to be like the priest and the Levite who know what they're supposed to do and they don't do it? Or do we want to be like the Samaritan who goes out of his way to help somebody in need? And so here's what I wanna do. I just wanna help. I wanna create, I wanna pose some questions or just give some ideas for how do we do this practically? And so one question I would have is, do you have money set aside to help bless people who, who are in need that you encounter? 
Like that's a, that's a practical way that, that you can meet needs, right? Because if here's what I've learned. If you set that money aside and you earmark it that way, then you're actually beginning to look for ways that you can meet needs for people that you see. What about this? Do you have a place or a plan for how you could take somebody in to your house? Now, here's what I know. I know that that's not feasible for all of us, depending on our our stage of life. But I think as I look around the room, for many of us, it is. Do Do you have a place set aside where if you met somebody today, you could actually give them a place to sleep tonight? What about this? Does your schedule ever have margin to help people? I know, I know for me, I'm usually rushing from one thing to the next thing. What about this? Are you willing to risk your rep- reputation to help somebody? So like, if you, were, if you stopped to help somebody and it meant that you were going to be late for work tomorrow, Are you willing to risk your reputation with your boss to help somebody that God puts in your path? Now, yeah, we can can tear that apart and we can kind of nuance all that. I hear you. If you've been late every day for two weeks, don't use that as your excuse tomorrow, okay? (laughs) Hear me, hear me. And here's the thing, as as we read this, as as we get a sense for what Jesus is trying to help us recognize, the weight of these expectations should feel beyond our ability to do, right? The reality, reality is, is that none of us don't have the resources or the personal strength and conviction to live this out perfectly every time, but we don't. We don't have the ability, like you and I have limits. We cannot do this perfectly every time. And so part of what we're seeing in this passage isn't just what you and I are supposed to do. It should point us to Jesus, the one who did this perfectly for us. Right, just think about this. When Jesus found us, if we're Christians, the condition he found us in was actually worse than the guy laying on the side of the road. Right, it said he was, he was, he was half dead, right? You and I, we were dead in our sins apart from Jesus. Right? We know that Samaritans and Jews hated one another. You and I were actually enemies of God before we came to know Christ. And despite all of that, despite a, a distance between us and God that we can't fathom, Jesus moved towards us. He stepped into our mess and paid the ultimate price so that we could be redeemed, redeemed and restored. And he goes, hey, I want you to go to the best of your ability and do the same thing. That's what he's calling us to do. That's why why deep down we know we want to do this for other people because we've experienced the fullest version from Jesus himself. And so here's what I want you to do. I want you to imagine with me what life would look like if you and I were known for living and loving this way. Imagine how we could impact our community if we actually saw people in need and moved towards them. Just just imagine what would happen if, if just the people in this room said, hey, because of what Jesus has done for me, 
he, because he met my greatest need, I'm going to go and be eyes up looking to meet needs for people in my community. Just, just, take, just think about what that could mean for our community. What could that mean? What, what could God do to meet physical needs in our community? What could God do to meet spiritual needs in our community? Imagine how that could impact your neighborhood, your family, your friends, the community you live in. Think about what would happen if our church said, hey, we are going to live in love like Jesus tells the church to live. Imagine, just, just go with me. Imagine if the watching world in our community said, you know what? I know, I know there are people who claim to know Jesus and don't love like him, but there's this group of people at Peach Valley that I don't even know that I believe all the crazy stuff that they say they believe, but let me tell you what I do believe is that those people actually move towards people and love people and help people in need. That when I needed something, they saw me, they moved towards me and they helped me. And it, it wasn't necessarily just drive by and help for a moment, like just like the Good Samaritan, they stayed and they lingered and they walked with me. Just what, what could that do? What could that do if this group of people said, this, this is what we're gonna be about? Not because you and I are good people in and of ourselves, not because we think by doing this, we can earn something from God, but because our lives have been so transformed by Jesus meeting our need that we can't sit still and we can't shut up. Guys, I'm telling you, I'm telling you, our communities and our neighborhoods would look different if we lived out this kind of love. And the reason, like we talked about last week, that it's so important for us to gather together is that we have to spur each other on and encourage each other to keep loving one another and doing the good things God has for us. Because on our own, I don't wanna do this every day. On our own, it's hard enough to be in a good mood when Ella's throwing a tantrum for the 10th time that day. The last thing I wanna do is go and talk to my neighbor. That's why we need each other. That is why God gave us the gift of the church. And so you and I, we are called to be inviting neighbors. And what I'm excited to see is what can God do with a group of people who are saying, God, not all that you've given me is for me. And so I'm gonna live my life open-handed to see anyone and everyone in need, just believing that you are at work in ways that I don't understand because he is. Can we be that kind of church? Can we be those kinds of people? So I'm gonna invite the band up. We're gonna get a chance to um, sing one more song before we leave. And here's what I wanna do. During this last song, I'm gonna be kind of over in the back of the room. And if you need to pray, if you need to talk through anything, if you have questions maybe even about what does it mean to begin a relationship with Jesus, I'm gonna be in the back. I would love to pray with you or talk with you. So here's what we do. I'm gonna pray, and then the band's gonna lead us in one more song. God, we are grateful. We are grateful that though we were far away, that though we were like the guy on the side of the road in need, 
that you moved towards us, that you sent Jesus to pay the ultimate price so that we could know you and have a relationship with you. God, would you give us courage? Would you give us open eyes? Help us to see who are the people and situations that you've brought into our lives so that we can give a tangible expression of your love. Not because we're good people, not because we have all the answers, but because we have experienced this to the fullest degree because of who Jesus is and what he's done for us. God, I pray that as you work, as you lead us and guide us, and as we take steps of faith, Lord, that you would work. God, I'm praying now that there would be people that we see with physical needs that we can step towards and minister to. God, that ultimately those would be opportunities not just to meet physical needs, but that would actually open doors for us to meet their greatest need. God, help us to see the people you want us to move towards. And would you give us the courage and the boldness to take steps of faith? God, I'm grateful for the example of Jesus and the encouragement that comes from belonging to his body, the church. God, we love you. It's your name I pray, amen.